recently uh, in our expository series in the book of Mark, which uh, began in the fall and after the Christmas break it resumed more recently. But Mark has given us three epic accounts of the doings of Jesus. He's shown us recently his mastery over the sea of the waves, the elements of nature, his mastery over nature, and then on the other side of the lake, his mastery over the demons, one man who was possessed with many demons. And then last week we saw Jesus' mastery over disease and death itself. As he raised a woman with a perpetual condition to health and brought back a little girl from the dead. Today, we're going to also get to munch on at least two-thirds of another Mark and Sandwich. And if you've been in this series, you know what I mean by Mark and Sandwich by now. It's, it seems like Mark likes to often start a subject and then he interjects something else that doesn't seem to be at all related and then he comes back to that again. And we'll see the two parts of, of that next Mark and Sandwich today and the other one will be uh, next week to finish out that one. So, Let's dig in. We've got a lot of scripture reading today. Uh, there's parts of this are not going to be ending, doing a lot of detail because it's simply telling us a story, but it's important, very important story about what happened to John the baptizer. Our scripture reading comes from Mark chapter 6. We're in chapter 6 now through verse 29. Hear the word of the Lord. He, meaning Jesus, went away from there and came to his hometown. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the, wis what is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and jo Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he, mar and he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place 
will not receive you, and they will not listen to you when you leave. Shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. And so they went out and proclaimed that the people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it. For Jesus' name had become known. So, some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. And that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison. And brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Let's pray. Father, will you now help us, give us grace to understand what your servant Mark, through Peter, was relaying to us in our time as well as his own. Father, help us to understand the message of your amazing love and grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Perhaps you're wondering about the title on the screen, Turning the Tables. Perhaps some of you uh, board game savvy Folk among us might know that uh, 
the idea of tables comes from the game or other board games like backgammon that involve the rolling of dice. Now, keep that idea of turning the tables in mind because we're going to come to it a little bit later today. Today, however, at the beginning here, we see Jesus being rejected by his own. Now, you might think, okay, that's new. How could they people reject such a powerful prophet, uh, a miracle worker, an incredible teacher with authority? But you see, this isn't the first time. <laughs> you have to go back about a year earlier. And Jesus coming out of his own town in Nazareth, He went into the synagogue, remember, and proclaimed, read the scroll from Isaiah and said, this reading is now fulfilled in your hearing. And they were marveling at him until he began to start, stop preaching and went to meddling. And he started becoming confrontational about his people and what they were doing and how, and their disbelief. And he rebuked them for their disbelief. And before long, they had taken him out to the edge of town and were about to throw him off the cliff. But God's timing was not yet. And in the scripture says that he moved among them and slipped away. But that wasn't the only thing either. Not only is he about to encounter rejection again, he did that first time, but remember, he's also basically... There's been a Baker Act attempt by his own family. By Mary and his brothers. Because they think he's losing it. He's bringing down and picking a fight with the wrong people. And he's jeopardizing the whole family and the community. And so they're going to try to put him away if they can get their hands on him. And convince him for his own good. But Jesus had not yet given up on his hometown. Surely, after all the mighty miracles and the spreading of his fame, maybe now they would at last recognize who he really was. And so, and went back a third time. Went back the second time to Nazareth. Third instance of being rejected. And yet now he comes back. And this is the outline we're going to use this morning. The restrictions of miracles, well, the limitations of miracles, the sharing of power that we see in this text, and then the sign, the very clear sign of suffering. That's what we're going to go through today. Let's look at that. First of all, under the category of the restrictions of miracles, that's in verses 1 through 6 of our scripture reading. Now, according to Mark, Jesus gathers his disciples and goes west for a visit to his homies. He goes home, goes where he's from. And upon arrival, he did everything that he should have done the way he should have done, very respectfully. Whether he arrived, he waited, and then on the synagogue, he went to synagogue, as would have been expected, and since here was obviously a rabbi with his entourage, his disciples following, he was given the floor. 
and was teaching in the synagogue. Now, the initial reaction was what? Amazing. Great. They were astonished. They were blown away by Jesus. And they'd heard the accounts in Capernaum and other places around this Sea of Galilee, which wasn't that far from Nazareth. They knew. They'd heard what he was doing and the mighty works. So they started wondering, where did this guy get this kind of authority? Where did he get this power? How does he do such things? But you know what? Like a lot of people, they overthink things. Started overthinking. They started musing too much and starting to think about that. And they started remembering, wait a minute. Isn't this guy the son of the local handyman? This guy's blue collar. He's a fix-it man. And, and they started, their admiration began to turn to annoyance. And ultimately to contempt. The more and more they thought, thought about it, the more and more they talked about it, their contempt grew for him. And you know how we know that? They don't call him the son of Joseph. They call him the son of Mary. You know what that means? Basically, he's a bastard. They're implying that Things have not gone down morally the way they should. And this is the offspring of that. They go from being amazed to absolutely annoyed. And they reject him outright. They take cheap shots. And you know what this shows us? (laughs) It shows us the limitations. The restrictions of miracles. They had no problem realizing that he had done miracles they weren't disputing that they were tricks that they were illusions they knew he had done miracles incredible miracles incredible healings demon exposing uh, expelling demons they knew that and yet they were could not get past that he's just an ordinary they think something's up. something's up. There's got to be something wrong with this picture. It shows you that miraculous signs in and of themselves will never produce faith. People will tell you that, oh, if I just would, God would do this for me and show me, I would believe. Jesus told us later in his ministry, no, you wouldn't. Remember the story of rich man and Lazarus? And ultimately, one of them says, you know, just, just, just tell them, you know, please, I'm, I'm tormented in this flame. Tell, go tell my family. And then maybe they'll repent and not come here like I have because of my unbelief. And Jesus said, they will not believe though one rise from the dead. He was not only talking about in that story, he would ultimately be talking about his own resurrection from the dead. And he said, they still won't believe. It's not more information that unbelief needs. In the end, we're left with a scene where Jesus and his townspeople are both perplexed at each other. They, because of his background, them because of their unbelief. And Jesus tells the disciples, 
that there's a long line of people who reject God's word and authority and his prophets. He says, go back and look at the history. Read your Old Testament. Look what happened to the prophets. Jesus would ultimately end up saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets. How I would have gathered you, but you would not. Acts 7. You see the account of Stephen indicts the people of his day, the Jewish leadership of his day, and says, you're the ones that killed the prophets, and you killed the Lord Jesus, the greatest of all prophets. You see, part of what Mark is trying to get across here is that we who follow a crucified Savior should not be surprised when a cruciform life is thrust upon us. We follow a crucified Savior, a man that, that, as Isaiah said, was despised and rejected of men and esteemed not. And Jesus later told his disciples, is a disciple better than his master? If they do that to me, don't you realize that's going to happen to you as well? Jesus is promising no rose garden. Most, many people coming to Christianity think they're going to come and get all their problems solved and everything's going to be fine and, and they're now going to have a little Aladdin-like genie or something to fix their life and keep them in a, in a wonderful euphoric state and out of all trouble. Jesus and the scriptures never promise that. Quite the opposite. Life may be more difficult. It will require more challenge. It will be harder. But oh, the reward, the blessing, the life to truly be alive in Christ that, that it is. Now, that's the restrictions that miracles. The second part of this is the beginning of the Mark and Sandwich. The sharing of power. That's in verses 7 through 13 where Jesus shares his authority with his disciples. Now, in spite of unbelief, the work of spreading the good news has to go on. Jesus isn't going to stop his plan. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly where he's going. He's in control and in authority all the way. And so he sends out his 12 <laughs> bumbling disciples <laughs> that, that sometimes uh, uh, their obtuseness is just, it's just amazing. And yet he puts confidence in them. He has faith in them and he sends them out with his authority. He transfers some of his own authority and power so that they will ultimately be able to cast out demons. And for the first time, they were given that authority of sharing his power was given to his followers. Basically, you know what that is? That's, that's basically franchising the gospel enterprise. It's going from, you know what a McDonald's franchise is. It's not just one McDonald's. You got another one. You got, and then somebody gets a life and gets authority to set up another one. And they keep doing the same, same thing, but it's just all over. It looks the same. But it's more and more of them proliferate. Jesus invites his followers to be his agents and under his own authority to help him bring the long-awaited kingdom. Isn't that an unbelievable thought? You, you read in Ephesians uh, chapter 3. Where, I think it's 3.20, where Paul says, 
God is going to display his great, amazing self and what he's accomplished uh, through his church. In other words, Paul is saying God's going to show the world how great he is and he's going to let the church basically be the lead dog in that pack. (laughs) I wouldn't have done that. I'm part of the church and I know what a mess I am. I don't know why God would do that, but that's what he says he's going to do. He's going to share his authority and he's going to let us be co-partners and co-laborers with him in that. And do you realize how how unknown and uh, unknown that was up until this point in time? All throughout the Old Testament, This action established Jesus as unique in Jewish history. Did you know that prophets, true prophets, could not transfer credentials? They couldn't say, if I'm I'm a prophet in the Old Testament, I couldn't say to Tom, Tom, here, I'm going to give you my authority, it's yours. Now, now, do well with it. Uh Uh-uh, didn't work that way. Even remember... Elijah, Elisha, when he said, give me, give me your, he said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Elijah said, that's a very difficult thing you're asking there, bro. You, you don't, you don't understand what you're, what you're asking. And yet Jesus, as the true prophet, does that. Why? What's Mark's point? This can't be done, but it is done, and it can only be done by one person, and that's God. And so Mark, once again, is saying, Jesus is the Son of God. He is God. Because he's the only one, God, that can transfer authority like this. Demons do not cast out demons. Despite, they can't perform miracles. Those are the works of God. Jesus told his disciples that they were to travel light. By the way, the travel light there is not instruction for all time and all ages, and everybody should do that. We all need to go and get rid of th- uh, half of most of everything we own. That's not, it's just a context. It's like the whole situation in Acts 2. You've got to understand the context, what was unique and special. But he was saying, for this purpose, I want you to go dependent on providence to take care of you. I will move in people's hearts. You just go and you preach the gospel, and you exercise demons, and you come back and tell me, go light. He tells them to go light. That was the direction. Now, that was the, uh, the, the uh, setup. But then he says something really interesting in the text after that. He says, by the way, if somebody doesn't receive you, if somebody does not welcome you, I want you to shake the dust off of your feet. Now, what was Jesus doing with that? Why why did he say that? Why did he throw that in? Well, it was customary for devout Jews when they'd been on on a journey to when they got back within their own borders, they would shake the dust off of their feet because having been contaminated by those nasty Gentiles and their land that they had walked on and, and profaned. It said they were back on holy ground again as they saw it. And they, they would get rid of whatever vestige of that. And yet Jesus says basically, practice that. If they don't receive you when you tell them and share the gospel with them. 
He says, that is what you do if they do not receive my message and me. It signaled, it was a sign of signaled judgment. So when you shook your sandal, you were basically saying, you deserve the judgment that is coming. But on this occasion, the disciples were to do and be solemn legal witnesses to the Jewish people's rejection of the gospel. Basically, we're testifying against you by this action, shaking off. We are testifying that you have rejected God's plan for your salvation. It's the old trilemma of C.S. Lewis. You all know that. Christ is not a good moral teacher. He's none of these things. He's either what? Um, A liar? He's Lord, liar, or lunatic. And there's no other option, Lewis says. And that's basically what this is. There's There's no sitting on the fence. There's no in between here. You either receive him as your Messiah and your only hope of salvation, or you reject him. And if you do, you are under the coming judgment. It's already upon you. There is no in-between. There's no sitting the fence. Finally, the sign of suffering. That's in the longest portion, 14 through 29. Now, Mark uses this story to fill in what happened to John the baptizer. Which Herod? You might be wondering. Is he talking about? It's not not Herod the Great. This is one of his sons, Herod Antipas, the Galilean territory, he's the one that has John beheaded. Now, why does John give us this account? Why does he give us these details of this sordid story? Well, he is filling in something that was not explained, exactly what happened to John. But it's more than just he's giving anecdotal information. He has a purpose, and it is very clear purpose. We're not going to get bogged down by the details. A fearless prophet, a vicious king, a vindictive woman, a shameless girl, and a lonely death. I've already read that to you. It's pretty straightforward. But what in the world does it have to do with Jesus? That's the million-dollar question. Why would John insert this story, which may be important, but it's, it's somewhere else. Why would he do it here and now? What has this got to do with Jesus' ministry now? John's imprisonment was a sign of what? The beginning of Jesus' ministry. You remember that? Mark begins with this baptism and ultimately he gets put in jail and that's when Jesus breaks onto the scene. Likewise, John's death will be another sign. His imprisonment signaled the coming of the Messiah onto the scene. John's death was now a sign of how that ministry of Jesus would end in suffering. 
It's a sign of Jesus' own impending death. You see, John's death was a chilling precursor of the vicious torture and mutilation and death of Jesus himself that he would endure in the not-too-distant future. By the way, I've got a, a slide up there, I think, uh, Paul. Uh, it's kind of hard to see there, but you'll get the gist. But, but look at John and Jesus, John on the baptizer on the left, Jesus the Son of God, and look at the parallels. Mark does this a lot. We could have done it last week with the woman with the uh, hemorrhage and with the girl. The, the, par- the comparing and contrasting. Mark's doing it again. Innocent of a crime, both ends. Held by civil prison, both of them. Herod's manipulated. The chief priests are manipulated. Herodias manipulates Herod. The chief priests uh, manipulate Pilate. Herod didn't want to kill, but ultimately gave in because of his fear and cowardice. John, executed by civil power. Jesus, the same thing. Followers of John claimed and buried the body of their leader, and they did the same for Jesus. What? Mark is trying to say is there is an incredible parallel here. What happened to John? Jesus follows suit. And yet, what happened as a result of what Jesus in his life and death did changes everything. Why did this happen? We can answer only in light of Calvary. It's the only way we can make any sense of this. Why did this happen? Why this brutality? Why did Jesus? Because it was all part of him being the suffering servant. When Jesus himself walked the same path of undeserved suffering, and here's the key, he turned the tables. What do you mean? He walked in that path Willingly, deliberately, and purposely in obedience to what he and the Father had agreed to before the foundation of the world. That they, that Jesus would come and turn the tables on himself. The righteous one would be put in the place of sinners so that he could turn the tables for you and for me. That he could turn the tables of judgment that we would surely face and succumb to. And yet, he, through his giving life, death, he turns the table on sin and disease and death itself. Now, what an amazing story. He embraced that role, and he did it so that the tables would be turned for you and me. A reversal of incredible proportions. Everything we should have got, we didn't get. Everything he deserved, he didn't get. But the great exchange, so that you and I, the guilty ones, may go free. That's so beautifully pictured in the hymn by Graham Kendrick, where it says, My Lord, what love is this that pays so dearly that I, the guilty one, 
may go free. Amazing love, what sacrifice. The son of God given for me. My daddy pays, my death he dies. That I might live. Praise God for Jesus who turned the tables for you and me. If you believe in him. Let's pray. Father, we pray, oh God, that thank you for such amazing love. Help us, Lord, to, to carry that love and that, that sacrifice, Lord, for us. And Lord, help us be willing to share it with others. And we pray, Father, that again, thank you for your love, Jesus, that would come and endure what you went through and suffer as you did, that you might be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 that promised and, and brought again forgiveness and wholeness and pardon for many. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.